Uh, if you have your Bible, find uh, Luke chapter 16. Luke 16. This is a chapter we have been in before. Um, since it's later in this same chapter that we find the story of the rich man and Lazarus, which we looked at just recently. And, uh, and it's certainly a neighborhood of Luke's gospel we've been in quite a bit because in the chapter just before this one, um, you find that, that trilogy of, of parables, uh, the parable of the lost sheep, the parable of the lost coin, and the parable of the lost sons, better known as the parable of the prodigal son. I just think it symmetrical flows better and a better name for the, that one is the prodigal of the lost sons. But anyway, we're coming back to well-worn territory tonight, but we're coming to um, what has been one of the more perplexing parables of, of all of them. Um, it's the parable of the dishonest manager. Um, also known as the parable of the unrighteous steward or the parable of the shrewd manager, the parable of the unjust steward, and on and on. It's got several names. But whatever you call it, the reason that it's been so perplexing, and if you read it ahead of time, you'll know what I'm talking about, is because at first glance, it, it seems like Jesus condones dishonest practices. It seems like he condones deceitful practices. Obviously, that isn't true, and that's not what he's doing, but interpreters have gone to different lengths to try to explain in plausible terms what, uh, what they think Jesus is actually doing in, in this parable. It's certainly an intriguing parable, but one that's worth our attention. Um, this is a parable, I think, related to Jesus. And I, I mentioned this last week. I reminded you of what I said from the very outset of this whole series. All of these parables are related to his kingdom, whether it's uh, how one comes into the kingdom, who comes into the kingdom, life inside the kingdom, uh, the, the goal or outcome of the kingdom in all its fullness. All the parables are related to it in some way like that. And um, this isn't one about how you come into it. That's, you come into that through repentance and faith and the finished work of Christ. But this is one about life inside that kingdom. What what kind of thing should characterize those who belong to Christ? What kind of thing should characterize those who are already a part of his kingdom? So if you're a follower of Christ and you've committed your life to him and represent him in and with your life, this is for you and for me. That being said, here's our passage. We'll read it to, uh, I'll read it out loud. You follow along. Uh, Luke 16, verses 1. We're going to read all the way through uh, verse 13, the the parable is verses 1 through the first part of verse 8. That's my view of that. And then uh, the rest of verse 8 through um, 13 is his commentary on the parable. So we'll read that. So Jesus uh, begins in, Luke begins at verse 1. He said to his disciples, there was a rich man who had a manager and charges were brought to him that this man was wasting his possessions. And he called him and said to him, What is this that I hear about you? Turn in the account of your management, for you can no longer be manager. And the manager said to himself, What shall I do, since my master is taking the management away from me? I'm not strong enough to dig, and I'm ashamed to beg. I've decided what to do, so that when I am removed from management, people may receive me into their houses." 
So summoning his debtor, uh, his master's debtors, one by one, he said to the first, how much do you owe my master? And he said, a hundred measures of oil. He said to him, take your bill and sit down quickly and write 50. And then he said to another, how much do you owe? And he said, a hundred measures of wheat. And he said to him, take your bill and write 80. The master commended the dishonest manager for his shrewdness, for the sons of this world are more shrewd in dealing with their own generation than the sons of light. And I tell you, Make friends for yourselves by means of unrighteous wealth so that when it fails, they may receive you into the eternal dwellings. One who is faithful in a very little is also faithful in much, and one who is dishonest in a very little is dishonest in much. If then you have not been faithful in the unrighteous wealth, who will entrust to you the true riches? And if you have not been faithful in that which is another's, who will give you that which is your own no servant can serve two masters for either he will hate the one and love the other or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other you cannot serve God and money let's pray Lord this is your holy inspired inerrant infallible sufficient and yes we will confess clear because with careful study, it is clear, and by comparison to other passages, it, it, uh, it adds to its clarity. And this is your necessary word, meaning that without it, we don't know who you are or what your will is. And so, Lord, we ask that you would give us eyes to see what Jesus is teaching us in, in these words. Would you give us minds to understand very clearly what he's saying and what to many is a perplexing text? Would you give us hearts to embrace the message that he's conveying to us? Would you give us wills to obey what it admonishes us to do? Would you give me the help that I need to teach? Please give us all ears to hear what the Spirit is saying in the Word. I ask in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, so maybe you could tell as we read it, uh, it's not the easiest parable in the world to understand. So what I want to do uh, is, is first just to walk back through the parable. It's a fun parable to me. Um, Walk back through the parable, sort of verse by verse, try to make sense of what's going on in the parable, uh, and, and also try to make sense of exactly what is Jesus commending in this parable, and, and, and what's the overall point he's making. And then from the comments that Jesus makes just after the, the parable, I want to summarize um, what he says there in three points of application, okay? Uh, and so if you're taking notes, here's what those three points of application are going to be. At the... In, this is, these are from the words after the parable. Jesus is going to commend, based on the parable, he's going to commend the clever and intentional use of money and material goods for three reasons. First, for the advancement of his kingdom. We're going to see that in verse 9. He's going to commend the clever and intentional use of money and material goods, first, for the, the advancement of his kingdom. Second, for the reward of faithful stewardship. For the reward of faithful stewardship. Uh, that's verses 10 through 12. And then finally, for our protection against fading joy and false security. For our protection against fading joy and false security. That's verse 13. I know that's a mouthful. But anyway, that's where we're going. But before we get to either 
any of those three points, let's just go back to the parable itself and try to make some better sense of what's going on in the story uh, and, and what is uh, initially a potentially baffling parable. So if we go back to verse 1, it begins by saying, he, he also said to the disciples, to his disciples, which shows you uh, that the, the chapter is sort of picking up in a, in a scene that's already going on. Uh, it's in the middle of an episode. You see that in the word also. He also said, so also indicates that say, he's already saying something to somebody, and he's also saying to his disciples. So before you come to this chapter, uh, stuff's already going on, and in, in indeed it, it has been. I've already pointed out that in the chapter right before this, you have that trilogy of parables, lost sheep, lost coin, lost sons. So he's, he's been saying plenty before you get to chapter 16, verse 1. But it's instructed to go back to chapter 15 and look at verse 1 where it tells us who actually he was saying all of this to. And so if you go back to chapter 15, verse 1, we learn uh, in chapter 15, verse 1 that he was saying all this to the tax collectors and sinners. The tax collectors and sinners were all drawing near to hear him. And certainly we know from stories like you're going to find just a, a few chapters later in Luke, in Luke 19, you have the story of Zacchaeus, who was a chief tax collector. Um, the tax collectors were known for not, not just well known for just being greedy, but just being rather unscrupulous in the fulfillment of their greed and in, in, in the, in how they, they would cheat people, the schemes to cheat people out of their money, and they became quite rich in the process. Then if you're open to chapter 15, verse 2, it tells you also there among the crowd that Jesus was talking to were Pharisees and scribes. The Pharisees and the scribes were there. Why is that noteworthy? Because, I mean, it doesn't seem noteworthy because they seem to be around every parable that Jesus tells. They always seem to be the Pharisees and the scribes were there. So why is it important here to note that in this crowd were also Pharisees and scribes? Well, if you go back to chapter 16, you're given another clue as to why it's noteworthy that these Pharisees were also there. Uh, in the hearing of where Jesus would have told this parable. Look in chapter 16, verse 14, by the way, where he says, the Pharisees who were lovers of money heard all these things and they ridiculed them. So the Pharisees, this passage is painting, the Pharisees really weren't any different than the tax collectors, uh, though the Pharisees may have just been a little less openly dishonest, openly scheming or... Or, uh, or, or whatever in their desire to accumulate greater wealth. So on the one hand, you had tax collectors. On the other hand, you had the Pharisees, who were also lovers of money uh, on, on the other side. But verse 1, chapter 16, verse 1, tells us that Jesus told this parable to the disciples, who were also clearly in the crowd. Now, I think this is important because I don't think Jesus was just feigning or pretending uh, to talk to his disciples, but really he was talking to those tax collectors and the Pharisees. I don't, I don't, because they need to hear it, I'm just going to pretend like I'm talking to you, but really I'm talking for the benefit of those people who really need to hear this. I don't think that's what's going on. I think Jesus was telling this parable also to his disciples because they needed to hear it too. Like, and we need to hear it. The disciples and we need to hear it precisely because of what I said earlier. Jesus in this parable is going to commend a state of mind and a state of heart that is expected of his followers uh, regarding money and possessions, okay? Um, so, 
That said, he, he tells this parable. In verse 1, he describes a rich man who had a manager. In other words, this rich man had someone that he entrusted to manage some of his affairs. Um, and they were obviously affairs that involved money uh, and the collection of debts and things like that. But verse 1 continues by telling us that, a, that charges were brought to him that this man was wasting his possessions. Um, Jesus is not in this parable specific in what way exactly this man was wasting his boss's possessions. That word wasting, by the way, when it says he was wasting his possessions, uh, that, that same word appears just a few verses earlier in chapter 15, verse 13, in the parable of the prodigal son, when it says of the prodigal son, he squandered his possessions in reckless living. He squandered them. That's exactly what this employee did of his boss. We don't know if it was embezzlement of funds. We don't know if it was not just not doing what he was supposed to do or if he was misappropriation of funds or whatever it was. It was a fireable of offense because that's exactly what, he, what happened to him in verse 2. The boss called him and said, what is this I hear about you? Turn in the account of your management for you can no longer be manager. Basically, clean out your desk and turn in your keys. Um, now, in the story, the boss comes to him and says, what is this I hear about you? So, it appears that he hasn't seen with his own eyes yet um, what, what the guy has done, uh, which is why the story continues in the way it does, by the way, but he's heard rumors of a credible nature that, that he's, he goes ahead and fires the guy. And this is when the story turns to the manager who has just been fired. And he's thinking over all of his options in verse 3. And he says, what shall I do since my master is taking the management away from me? And he, and he, and he reasons basically this. And if you're looking at verse 3, this is a paraphrase of that. He basically says, I've always had a desk job, so I don't want to dig ditches for the rest of my life. Um, and I don't want to be a beggar for the rest of my life. So what? what? What am I going to do? And in verse 4, he decides. Basically, he decides, before I turn in my books to my boss, who will then be able to see with his own eyes my dishonesty, before I do that, I'm going to go through door number 3. Um, and at the end of verse 4, he tells us why he's choosing this option. He says, so that I, when I am removed from my management, people may receive me into their houses which just means when I'm fired, I'll still have plenty of business for myself. I'll have plenty of business contacts, and people might employ me because of what he had done for them while he was still employed for this guy who was firing him. He's given him what he's doing, he's given himself a way to spin it to his clients that he was fired for an unjust reason, which is obviously not true, but that's his plan. So in verses 5 through 7, he, he one by one called his boss's uh, debtors, and he started cutting deals with him. Uh, he tells the guy in verse 6, uh, who owed 100 measures of oil, cut it to 50, just pay that. right? And in verse 7, guy owed 100 measures of wheat, cut it to 80, just give me 80. And in my imagination, I, I try to read... I try, I try to read with my imagination. It's not infallible, it's not inerrant, but it's fun. You, 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 you just imagine this guy who was street smart enough that when he went to these customers, like 
he spun the story to make it look like I just imagine that he like 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 he lobbied his boss, you know, like I'm I'm here I'm I was fighting on your behalf. I know you owed a hundred. I've talked to him, and and I've talked him down to fifty. You know, like he's making himself look good, and, but he's also saying I lobbied my boss to make it look not suspicious, you know, and, and but it makes him look good in the process, and I, I think he's probably cutting off rumors of, of, of getting fired. Maybe saying, I'm, go, I'm, I'm going out, I'm doing this, I, I want to go out on business on my own. But anyway, he's pulling one over on his boss for the last time. And he's doing it so he's going to have a soft place to land when he gets fired. He gave them a deal, so maybe you'll return the favor, maybe you'll do the right thing by me when I come calling again. And then what I believe are the last words of the parable. It's like this is just where Jesus drops it. The parable, the parable ends with a surprising twist. He says, the master, when he found out what the manager had just done by cutting all these deals, it says he commended the dishonest manager for his shrewdness. And you're like, what? Like, that's the end of it. Like, he commended him. He's, he was dishonest. I mean, like, what in the world? That's not at all what you would expect the master to have said. You would expect him to, to curse that manager's name as he was walking out the door and to anybody that would listen. But that's not what he did. He basically said, clever move. Got to give you that. And people have debated and struggled with this parable because it, to them it seems like Jesus in this parable, uh, is, he commended somebody for their dishonesty. Like that's the end of it. Good work. That's the, that's the guy's name. That's what he says. And at first glance, I can see that too, but I don't think that's at all what Jesus is doing. Um, for one thing, Jesus doesn't mince any words about the manager in the parable. He clearly portrays him as stealing uh, from his boss. And then right there in verse 8, he calls that manager the dishonest manager. So he's not trying, trying to, to portray uh, the manager's dishonesty is somehow not that bad. And for the other thing, what does he actually commend him for in this parable? His shrewdness. He commends him for his shrewdness. We don't use that word a whole lot. I've never heard any of you ever say, that was really shrewd. Uh, so you might not have any idea what it means. You're like, oh, he commended him for his shrewdness. Okay, great. Um, what does it mean? It just means clever. Shrewd means clever. Uh, and as dishonest as the manager clearly was, for sure, he was also pretty clever. Like, and he gave a lot of forethought to his last hustle. And Philip Ryken adds this in his commentary on this parable. He says, Philip Ryken is a theologian and a pastor. He said, there is a legitimate moral difference between saying, I applaud the clever steward because he acted dishonestly, and saying, I applaud the dishonest steward because he acted cleverly. The master was saying the latter, not the former, and this is the key to understanding the parable. Jesus was not coming out in favor of fraud or telling, that, or, 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 uh, telling us that it is right to cheat people. He was not saying that dishonesty is the best policy. Instead, he was giving an example of how clever 
worldly people can be when they act in their own best interest. And in the verses that follow, Jesus expands on that. He points out in the second half of verse 8 that the sons of this world are more shrewd, more clever um, in dealing with their own generation than the sons of light. He's saying that ought not to be. And he gives reasons why godly people who follow him and belong to his kingdom should be no less clever than this guy and should give no less forethought and ingenuity to how we use our money and our possessions for his everlasting glory and for our own everlasting good. And he gives three reasons that I want us to consider quickly for that. And the first one is this, that, that, that Christ's people ought to see their money and their possessions in such a way that they look for ways to, and they strategize for ways how to use them first for the advancement of Christ's kingdom. I think this is what Jesus is saying in verse 9. Look there again. And I tell you, make friends for yourself by means of unrighteous wealth. That's, that's another one where people just go, what? Uh, so that when it fails, they may receive you into the eternal dwelling. So that one needs a little... Uh, when Jesus, Jesus says, make friends for yourself by means of unrighteous wealth, he's not saying go do unrighteous things to get your money and make friends that way. You get the wrong friends that way, by the way. He's, he, he's, he's, he's not saying play Robin Hood, rob the rich and give to the poor. Um, no, he's, I think when he says by means of unrighteous wealth, he's just reminding you that money and wealth in this life is this worldly. Like it's, there's nothing righteous about having wealth. There's nothing righteous about being poor. There's, it, he, he may have called it unrighteous here of, because of what he'll say about it in verse 13, by the way, that about the temptation that it poses to make it a God and make it an idol and in our lives. But either way, he says in verse 9 that it's, it will fail. That's what he says in verse 9. So that when it fails, one day money will fail. One day it will cease to have even earthly value because the earth will fail. I mean, one day money will be useless. But until that day comes, Jesus is saying to his people to use the wealth that God provides them as he says in verse 9, to make friends, he says, who will receive you into the eternal dwellings. And you're like, what? What does that mean? Well, I'm 100% sure that Jesus is not here advocating generosity that, that it will earn you a place in heaven. That's not what he's saying. Um, he's not saying that the more generous we are, the greater chance we have of being received into eternal dwellings. That is a false gospel that is believed far and wide in our culture. It is. Just walk on Auburn's campus and the names on all the buildings. It's, 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 that's a false gospel. So many hang their hat on the generosity that they show to uh, people during their lives or philanthropy or giving to charities, giving and having your name on a building. Uh, so the, and you, these generous, generous people... Uh, when they die, I mean, like, like Bill Gates, man, he does a lot of crazy philanthropic things. Like, when they die, you'll, you'll, their, their eulogy is just so full of hope, full of cheer, simply because they were good and generous. Surely they're in heaven, right? You hear that. That's everywhere in our culture. That's not at all what Jesus is saying here. 
Since as I said last week, all the way back in chapter 9 of this gospel, it already said in chapter 9 that Jesus had set his face like flint to go to Jerusalem, which meant to a cross, to bear the sin of sinners, uh, and rise from the dead so that through repentance and faith alone in his finished work we can be saved and, and, and be justified and have peace with God. No, what Jesus is saying here by make friends by means of unrighteous wealth so that they may receive you into the eternal dwellings is, I believe, the, the, the way we used money, the money that God allowed us to have in this life, the way that we used it for the advancement of his gospel, the way that we used it for the advancement of his kingdom, whether that was through giving to missions causes, whether that was to support missionaries or to any of those we've had an opportunity to support who took the gospel to the nations or to the to the far corners of our own land. Perhaps the friends that you make are those who somewhere along the way came to faith in Christ through the witness of someone who was there enabled by your generosity. Or people who come to faith in Christ through the offerings you give to this church. Think about it. Just the offerings of of just worldly money that you give to this church that go into an offering plate or you give digitally or whatever you do, and it goes here, and then a lot of that money filters down into our benevolence ministry, and hungry people who need food come here on Monday morning, and they get food assistance, and along with that food assistance, someone shares the gospel. And because they, they received a cup of cold water in Jesus' name... They receive food, physical help, along with the gospel. They come to faith in Christ. Your generosity played a part in making that happen. And part of that, part of that process, was, process was how you stewarded the money that God gave you in this life. I think, it, I think it is amazing to think about the friends who will receive us. That's what it says. That's the language it uses. The friends who will receive us in heaven that we will have no idea about. Like, but our generosity contributed in some way to their hearing the gospel and finding salvation in Christ. God is working all things together for our good. And I can only imagine how elaborately he is weaving everything together so that we would be astounded by all the good he worked because we chose the better option with our money of investing it in the kingdom rather than ourselves and in our pleasure and earthly comfort above all. But Jesus gives a second reason um, why uh, that his people ought to see their money and possessions in such a way that they look for ways to strategize how to use them is for the reward of faithful stewardship. I think this is what Jesus is saying in verses 10 to 12. These are interesting verses because Jesus begins talking in verse 10 using what is a common principle in his teaching about one who is faithful in a little can be trusted in, to be faithful with a lot. The opposite is likewise true, dishonest with a little, dishonest with a lot. Yet another reason why, we, by the way, we know that Jesus wasn't commending the manager's dishonesty in the parable, dishonest with little, dishonest with much. But in verse 11, he turns the direction toward the truth that what we do in this life has repercussions in the next. He talks about those who are faithful here to, to use their money and resources for his gospel and kingdom. Notice, 
he says, of those people, according to use the words uh, in verse 11, being, they, those people will be entrusted the true riches. That's what he says at the end, uh, end of verse 11. He, he says it negatively in verse 11. If you're unfaithful with your worldly wealth, who will entrust to you the true riches? Implying that if we are faithful, someone will entrust to us the true riches. Which is what? In context, it seems to be talking about heaven because Jesus has already said that unrighteous wealth will fail. So earthly riches are going to pass away, meaning the true riches here, I think, in verse 11, are, are exactly what Jesus was talking about in Matthew 6, about treasures in heaven. Lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where moth and rust do not destroy true riches and here so it says who will entrust to you the true riches who who would then entrust them to the faithful steward here it seems to be god himself jesus is never saying he's never shy about saying that our own rewards in heaven is a proper motivation to be generous here he says it um to be generous here, which is what he says, lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven. And he's going to reiterate the same thing just a little differently in verse 12. He says, have, have those who have not been faithful in that which is another's, who will give you that which is your own? Have not been faithful. And if you have not been faithful in that which is another's, what is that? Who will give you that which is your own? I believe what he's saying there is that even though the money and the wealth in this life are passing away one day, before it does pass away, it is God who sovereignly assigns the measure of wealth that we have at any given time. That's why it says that what, even what we have belongs to another. It belongs to him. We're just, we're just, we simply steward it. When it says that which is another's, all the money that I have is his. All that I have is another's. It belongs to him. I'm a steward. And, if, and, he, and he's saying here in verse 12 that if we steward well that which he gives to us for, for his glory, for, for the advancement of his gospel and kingdom, he will give to them in reward, verse 12, that which is your own, which I take means we will enjoy it for eternity. It will never fail. When we're, Jesus is saying a lot about eternity here. Like, when we're young, we don't often think about possessions in this way. We don't think about eternal reward. You hear it, but it just kind of washes over you. Um, you don't think about eternity very much. Heck, it's hard to get you guys to think about next semester or uh, next school year, let alone eternity. Um, but Jesus tells us here that you should, you should. Like he's, he, I, I don't know, man. I, I even, you know, now I, I can only imagine what the true riches are. Like, um, and that which is your own. That's got substance to them. The true riches and that which is your own. And Jesus, I feel like, man, if we just knew what Jesus knew, 
I'd be like, whoa, you know? Man, pursue it. That's what Jesus is telling us to do. Be faithful here so that you receive that when you get there. Well, he finishes his remarks here with one final reason to be wise and clever with our money for his glory, and that is for our protection against fading joy and false security. Jesus ends this passage in verse 13, reminding us again of the dangerous temptation to, or that money and wealth and material security that it brings, to trust it more than God, to serve it more than God, to desire it more than God, to idolize it, and you don't even know it's happening. You can't even tell it's happening. So that it, imperceptibly it becomes a functional God little g in our lives. And he says it has the potential to be a master over us. And you know it's true. We organize our whole lives around the attainment of more of it. I literally wake, I, I organize my whole life around the attainment of more money. Um, and to maximize how much of it I can have. It's like the whole liturgy of my life is aimed at the acquisition of money. And... And, 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 and the sinful temptation is then upon the acquiring of it to feed my joy through earthly pleasures and to feed and to prop up my perception of, of security through having a lot of money. Now, we have missed the point of the parable entirely if, and, and the rest of the passage along with it if we think that it's wrong, period, for the whole liturgy of our lives to be aimed at the acquisition of money. Because the, the cleverness that Jesus is advocating here might look exactly like that. The cleverness that is being advocated here looks like being street smart and acquiring money and cleverly doing it if the wealth that you then have enables even greater generosity for the kingdom and, and, and the gospel. There is nothing wrong, and in fact, much good, with a believer setting out to be an entrepreneur, has a good idea, they think it'll work, and they, they go, and they, and they are wildly successful in it, and they make tons of money, if the goal through that is to use our wealth for the kingdom of Christ and the advancement of his gospel and generosity to his people. There's a guy right now in, in London who works with a church plant that we're, we're going to work with in London um, in July. And um, he was exactly that, man. He was an entrepreneur in North Carolina, made, made a crap ton of money so that he was just enabled by all the money he made, basically, um, to just uh, retire and use that money that he made to move to London uh, and basically finance a lot of the things that that church needed to do to flourish and, and, and let the gospel grow and spread and germinate in London. Like, man, that's just absolutely true. Be that clever. I'm not saying everybody's got to be rich, 
No. But be clever. Like, strategize. Try to, try to, try to make godly use of money. That's absolutely true. But it would be naive to see that and be oblivious to the danger that lies close beside it. The, da- the danger to love money, love the money, trust the money, serve the money, desire more of it for a joy that's only fading away. And it only produces false security. Again, lay up treasures in heaven. Well, rather than just being a curious parable that it's fun to debate, what do you mean he said good job? What do you mean Jesus said make a lot of money through unrighteous wealth or whatever? What do you mean? Rather than just being a curious parable, I think this is a very needed and relevant word for us in every generation until Jesus comes back. I pray that this parable and the message of it, even if you don't have a lot of money now, you graduate and you get you a real good job, that this parable right here would be like a rock in your shoe and you can't forget it. And you'll look for ways to take that unrighteous wealth that's fading away and invest it in something that will never fade away. Yeah, let's pray.